0: Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the French Food Podcast. We're proudly part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. If you're looking for other fabulous shows on subjects like history, news or pop culture, then check them out at evergreenpodcast.com. Fabulously Delicious, the French Food Podcast is the podcast that's all about the cuisine that is said to have founded modern cooking. French ingredients and dishes have been the starting block for many of the world's best chefs and cooks. On Fabulously Delicious, you'll learn all about those dishes and ingredients, as well as get to know more about fabulous French foodies. I'm your host, Andrew Pryor. Enchanté. Enchanté. Ten years ago, my life changed when I competed on Master Chef Australia, and now I'm living my best life right here in the French countryside. Here, life is all about cooking, eating, meeting wonderful food producers, chefs, home cooks, drinking amazing wines, eating some of the over would you believe 1500 french cheeses yum and sharing these fabulous experiences with you my fabulously delicious audience i hope you're enjoying them today it's international chef day and so i thought we'd celebrate by bringing you the highlights from a great conversation that i had with a chef that has taken the baking world by storm he's the host of the great canadian bake-off and a frenchman who has found a life he loves in his new home canada sit back turn the volume up if you're not driving, pour yourself a glass of wine, break a baguette, add a bit of saucy on maybe, some of that delicious cheese, and enjoy today's episode of Fabulously Delicious, a conversation with Bruno Feldenson. There's a lot to chat about today, but first up, I wanted to ask, you grew up in, uh, um, now, Pardon my French, Bruno, but uh, I'm an Australian with a really bad accent. I will try and get it correctly. Uh, Clermont-Ferrand, yeah, is
1: yeah, that it's right? A, um, it's a great rugby town. Yeah, we have an amazing team, uh, not doing so well this year, and it's Michelin Tyres' hometown.
0: Right. Okay. It's near the Auvergne, is that right? Yep.
1: Yeah, yep. Yeah, it's right in the centre. It's it's been looked down by a lot of French people as the uh, kind of the armpit of France. You know, we are looking, Parisians definitely look down on us like we are, uh, you know, rednecks. But um, it's okay, we love it.
0: I often hear about Parisians looking down on people, but I wonder, is there any real Parisians left anymore? I mean, you know, you have to, there's all these rules about how you can call yourself a Parisian.
1: I think it's a reflection of French society, you know, French society is a very elitist country. So if you make it to Paris, you are superior to anybody else.
0: There's um, obviously great food that has come from that region, the Auvergne. What dishes might we know from there?
1: Um, I think we are known for uh, sausage, like dry sausage, saucisson sec. Cheese, you know, from Danbert, uh, Saint-Nectaire. Yeah. And maybe for our dishes, maybe uh, uh, in poté, poté potée So it's like a, a cabbage too. So nothing sophisticated, but definitely great in winter months. Where, where I grew up, there is a, something called Pompo graton which is like a, a brioche dough, very dense, with, a, with a pork rinds inside. It
0: sounds pretty good.
1: So not very rich in diversity in terms of cooking, but defi- definitely very uh, down-to-earth, rustic food.
0: Your childhood wasn't exactly the idyllic French childhood, living in the countryside of France, etc. How did you end up then in the food industry? Was food really important to you in as a child when you were growing up?
1: Yeah, it was, but I wasn't conscious of it. So, yeah, food. I think food is important for every French. Anybody who lives in France, food is important. <clears throat> so it comes It comes with, uh, once you're born in France, food is important, like, When you're born in Austria, on Austria, ski is important. I think we don't realize it. So, so it wasn't a dream of mine to become a a chef. My dream was to become a pilot. I wanted to fly planes all over the world. That was my childhood dream. But again, in France, being such an elitist country, you know, the schools are very selective. Um, So I didn't do well in school. And they, they look at you down as, you know, you're not worth it. So we send you on the side to our school system. And, and, um, you know, I was like, you know, I need to do something with my life. And then one day I was walking down a little town and I saw a chocolate shop that's been around for over hundred years who were looking for an apprenticeship. And I think I find, when I did my interview, the boss told me that he was driving Porsches and BMW. So I told myself, mm, you know, maybe that's a job for me. And But really, I fell in love with the smell and the scent of melted chocolates. That's how I started. <laughs> it was like 15 years old. And I went for the interview with no plan. And that became the plan, you know.
0: Similar to myself, you had grandparents that were from Italy, so but you had a grandmother that was there. Do you have many memories of her and, and her cooking?
1: Oh yeah. We, uh, we used to make new keys from scratch, and I remember making new keys with boiled potatoes, a little flour on the table, and uh, one or two egg yolks, and you know we do by hands, and then we use a fork to roll it. And our tomato sauce wasn't like with fresh tomatoes. We will always do tomato sauce with a um, tomato paste. Water, olive oil, butter, and herbs, and garlic. So it was a different, it was a very oily new keys with tomato flavor. Um, you know, when I grew up, I don't think we had too many kind of tomatoes. We have... For what I remember, only one kind of tomatoes in the supermarket, you know, and that was to make tomato salad. You never make tomato sauce with it. That Definitely not in France, where I grew up. So tomato uh, paste, maybe because it was the, uh, the way to make tomato sauce for the poor people, I guess. <laughs> but gnocchi, definitely, with my grandma, and gnocchis. And we used to do, you know, she grew up in North Africa, so she will do a wonderful couscous. She will do escabeche. you know, those... Uh, you know, pickled sardines with olive oil and uh, onions. And uh, so that was my side of the Mediterranean cuisine at home. And, you know, in mind, I'm a first generation born in France. My family was German-Italian. And then, um, and then my grandfather was German-born, you know, in Berlin. And his food was the total opposite for my grandmother. You know, he was... <laughs> It was a black, dark bread with pork fat on the top. I don't think you knew what butter was. It was just pork fat everywhere. Um, we will make cheese head. I remember going to the market to buy a pig's head. And then we will boil it for hours, shred the meat until you only have the bones, and chop it Put parsley, garlic, onions, and cook it in a ramekins to make a cheese head. So, um, fabulous. But one thing my grandpa will eat at night, late, will be cold pasta with sugar. With sugar, yeah. Wow, and uh, yeah, he will go in the fridge, get the spaghettis like they were cold, put sugar or jam actually, and then he will eat it. And you know, it's like starch and sugar, technically.
0: You had grandparents that are Italian and German. Mm-hmm. Do you think that you really felt French?
1: No, I never. It's funny you say that because you know my, my family grew up. My, my grandma grew up in North Africa. She arrived in France because of the independence, and her first experience. And she was French born. She was French citizen, but she'd never been to France. And she told me when she arrived in Marseille with nothing, they have to live in a hurry. A French woman went to see her at the railway station, spit on her face, and told her, "Go back to your country." So I think it set the tone for my whole family that you know I think my, my grandma never was never happy I think she died miserable because she wasn't dying where she wanted to die and and you know from that I think I never felt I belonged plus you had the component of so- social background too so yeah I mean my first reaction was whenever I can get out I get out and and le- lucky when I work in France I have in our kitchen. We have a lot of young Americans working with us. Guy from Newport Beach, you know, and we're still friends for the years later. Guy from New York, and they always tell me, you know, say, "Come, come to the U.S. You're gonna love it." And, and there is nothing like someone who's cool from California. They take <laughs> being cool to a level that we cannot achieve in France. And was this young kid from Newport Beach, uh, Patrick Glennon, He was Irish-American from Newport Beach, Newport Beach in California, a surfer, blonde, blue eyes, a fantastic cook. You know, he would kick ass. He would kick the French cook's ass in the kitchen, how good he was. And we became friends. And he kept telling me, he said, well, you know, come over, come over. You know, you're going to love it. And And we became good friends. You know, no other French likes him because he was great and successful, and he actually never cooked. He only cooked in the kitchen because he needed money to surf in the south of France. That was his goal. And, um, and um, you know, I find what means to work hard, to have a goal, and to enjoy life. I mean, the guy was a party guy, yet he was a fantastic cook. And, uh, and royalty, too. you know, 40 years later, we still France. The excellency we have in France is a product, the produce. The farmers, the small artisans, that's a strength for French cooking, I believe.
0: So your first job you mentioned before was in a chocolate shop. It was quite a prestigious one.
1: Yeah, you know, it, they, they, they were around for 100 years, uh, 100 years. And the equipment must have been 80 years old. I mean, everything was running with a big, a big belt system. and The floor was just concrete and uh, uh, sawdust. Um, you know, very old. But, and we will make everything from scratch praline, pralines, uh, candied orange. So it was a very seasonal job. So in summer, we will do all the the liquors. So, you know, we with, have uh, uh, with, uh, cornstarch in big chambers. I mean, you go home, you're like white. And then we will do the candied orange. We will, we will get almonds whole. We will boil them to remove the skin, make marzipan with it. So it was a very, I learned a lot, like, you know, uh, yeah. and in winter we will do all the truffles for Christmas and it was non-stop. I have a great boss, my, uh, my maître d'apprentissage was a fantastic man and he became almost like my, my first father figure around me, you know, learned a lot, learned the, uh, the principles, the basics, the respect, uh, not easy, you know, but actually it was a kitchen with very little bullying, um, which was good. But uh, that w- that was good for me. That established parameters, uh, a strong platform, and good working skills, which helps you when you turn twenty twenty five for sure.
0: And your apprenticeship was for two years, and you finished it with a kind of perfect uh, exam. Is that right? I
1: think I scored one of the highest score in the whole academy, all over France. All of, all the you know the, it's called a certificate. So, CAP certificate of apprenticeship professional certificate apprentice professional, and I think my score was 380 out of 400. Um, yeah, I mean, I got the medal, I got the certificate, and
0: pretty amazing for a, a kid that's grown up in a foster system, you know, yeah, to then, you know leave school back, at 15 to do that.
1: Yeah, um, it was easy, it wasn't you know, sometimes it's hard, but yeah, remember I cruised through it, and my boss was. He laid it because, of course, he make him look like an amazing instructor, which he was. <laughs> but after, you know, the recognition as a as a boss, as a professional was uh, huge for him. For me, it was just the first steps of With that. I mean, you know, he told me right away, you need to go to Paris. You, you cannot stay here. You have to go. The world is waiting for, for you. And I moved to Paris to work at, you know, uh, a higher level of expertise. Technique, like the way they do it was amazing, flavor-wise, um, I worked with an amazing, uh, what was his name, Michel, uh, I forgot his last name, but he was a chef, um, you know, down to earth, very good at his technique. But unfortunately, I did experience a lot of bullying in that kitchen, and sexual harassment as well. And um, so. So I decided to, to leave after a year and a half, and uh, then a stroke of luck. One of our um, we had a, somebody came to do a stage with us, <clears throat> and this guy was Frederic Robert, Robert, and he was uh, Alain Ducasse pastry chef. Now keep in mind, I have no idea who Ducasse was, and actually at that point Ducasse was still very, um, <laughs> and we call him Dudu. You know, his nickname was Dudu, and. Dudu was almost unknown. I think he only had a star Michelin and he wasn't in Monaco yet. And then one day uh, Chef Ducasse called me and he's like, you know, Frederick spoke to me about you. He said, you're amazing. I want to hire you as a chocolatier for a uh, a new project. And I said, no, because I have no idea who he was. I'm like, no. Wow. Because, you know, if you work in shops, it's a different world compared if you work in restaurants. Yeah. So I said, no, then he called me again. He said, you know, Bruno, come, you know, have this huge project in the Basque country. You're going to love it. And I want to hire you as a chocolatier. I decided to, to go and say, yeah, you know what? Let's take a chance. And I go. And that was the, the jump into the restaurant world, the hotel world, I think, which is very important if you want to succeed. If you just stay in pastry shop, in stores, I think it limits your expertise it limits the dynamis- dynamism of what you can do. A restaurant is a different ball game. It's 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 a faster pace. It's nonstop, and you do meet a lot of great people from all over the world
0: you want to support fabulously delicious the podcast and learn more about french food then join me and some of the wonderful people cooking it and producing it hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts be it apple spotify google or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts but is there one restaurant kitchen that you would have loved to have worked in or one chef that you would have loved to have worked for
1: um no because i was I was loyal to Chef Ducasse. He was very good to me, and I was good to him. And Ducasse was, you know, he has this, I don't know, this fa- fatherly, fatherly feeling. You know, when he speaks to you, you just melt. Because, you know, I, keep in mind, I met him after his plane crash. So I don't know if you remember the story. He, he I think he, has, he was consulting for a restaurant in... Uh, he took a plane back with his crew, a small plane crashed. He was the only survivor, and he has this yeah, and you know and I met him right after the crash, maybe a year and a half, where he was walking around with canes. his hire was like looking on the side, and he was you know so anchor, anchored on the moment. I felt this guy is like you know he cares. I felt like he cared about his cooks. And only after I know the story that he was the only one to survive and he felt very guilty for a long time after. And, you know, I think Ducas was for me like, you know, the guy who say, you know, you can do it. And he was always supportive. When I came to him, I said, chef, I'm going to America. And he's like, sure, go. And if you're tired of it, call me and you come back with me. He never said anything else. He said, yeah, go, 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 go. Go explore, go see. And yeah. That's what I like about him. I will go back to his kitchen.
0: You've just mentioned that you moved to uh, America. How old were you when you went there? Uh,
1: 20, 23. Okay, so still pretty young. Oh yeah, yeah, naive as you can be, a backpack, no plan, very little money. Um, you know, we, we. I have a friend who went the year before. He was a waiter. His name was Jesus. <laughs> And Rezus went to LA and he kept, you know, no email of that type, nothing. But we will get postcards. He said, oh, guys, you have to come. We have to come. So a year later with a friend, I'm like, you know what? Let's get backpack and we go. So we, uh, first we flew to New York because I have some cooks we work with, in, you know, in New York. And we stay in New York. And it was the typical New York experience when I arrived. You know, I was like, you know, n- no scared, fairly naive. And I just loved it, you know, just the way people walk, talk, eat, you know, I never, I felt I belong right away. I never felt as a foreigner, um, you, know, and, you know, and it was a New York experience where for breakfast we go to a diner and to that day I still eat for breakfast the same when I go out, two eggs over easy with a toast. <laughs> it's not
0: very French of you.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know, but because that was my first breakfast in America with, uh, what was his name? Patrick, I think? No. Uh, I forgot his name. And, you know, the elevator was the one operated with the cage and somebody was moving it up and down. I remember watching at 2 o'clock in the morning on public television. So on, I, never ha- I never seen cable in France because we did not have. We have five channels. But in New York, you had cable. We have the cable box. And I remember watching Iron Chef from Japan at 2 o'clock in the morning on those local... Um, because in the U.S., uh, there is like public cable, so you can buy your time and put whatever you want. So there is a wacky story, there is weird stuff. But there was the Iron Chef, the real one from Japan at two o'clock in the morning. I'm like, I would watch it. I said, well, that, this is nuts. This is crazy. But that was 20 years before um, uh, the Food Network, you know. And uh, yeah, I love, I love this eccentricity. Um, we ate in a restaurant again, you know, we had at a David Boulet restaurant, we had a at chanterelle, and we felt welcome, you know, and those were the restaurant of New York that was the top of the top. Yet, as a young guy, I was feeling welcome. I was respected. I was never looked down that when you go to France, if you don't have the right jacket or a tie, you know, you cannot sit at that table. In New York, it's like, yeah, come spend money with us and have fun. And, you know, that was like, and I stayed in New York, not to work. We just enjoyed for three weeks. Then I moved to LA to see Resus, my friend Resus. And there was no Resus at the airport. So we ended up with my friend staying in Inglewood in a motel, you know, 25 bucks a night, um, it was a weird experience, but again, I was naive. I was just, I think my eyes were like wide open, to of Course, the new yeah. things, and then couldn't find a job, uh, starting to run out of money. And then I found a job in a pizzeria downtown LA on Olive Street in the late 80s. Today is a bit better, but in the late 80s, that was scary. That was Full of gangs and after 5 pm there is nobody It's just homeless and gangs on the street so we walk in that pizza and we live inside for a week because they have no, nowhere else to play making pizza they, the guy was a, a old uh, russian jewish immigrant and um you know we uh we uh you know i wasn't scared i was just um you know this is cool this is cool you know we're having a good time here and then i met an amazing chef who really took me under his umbrella. And his name was Joachim Splishol, who you know, who today run, I think he sold everything, but at that time he was the upcoming, uh, with um, uh, the chef from Chicago was the uh, you know, upcoming chef in the US. And we opened a restaurant called Patina uh, 25, 27 years ago. That was a place to go eat. He never became famous like Wolfgang Puck. But Joachim, I think today in LA, probably a quarter of the chefs in LA went work for him at one point or another. Um, and Joachim was like, he was the opposite of Ducasse. He was cold, distant, very hard to work with, but he was an excellent uh, boss. Teach me how to embrace American culture. He told me, he said, if you're going to come here to cook French food, you're wasting your time, pack your bags, go back to France. But if you come here and embrace what people want, you're going to become very successful. And I worked with him in Carmel, Monterey, left and right. And he made me understand that in the U.S. there is culture. There is something called pop culture. There is some, you know... There is immigrants coming from all over the place. And he said, in your kitchen, you're going to have immigrants from Mexico, San Salvador. You know, those guys know how to cook. And he told me, remember, he said, those guys are the best cooks you're going to work with. And I'm like, how? You know, because again, I was conditioned as a French cook. You know, I thought the French were the hot shit. (laughs) Then I work along Mexican cooks. And those guys are fantastic. You know, never been to cooking school but they work hard they know how to cook they understand flavors they, they um, you know and I always you know I always say you know when you work in a kitchen full of you know latin cooks when somebody is starving he's going to cook for everybody else around if you work in a kitchen with just americans if he's starving he's going to cook he's going to make a sandwich for himself so the dynamics is different you know the team spirit is different and working in that kitchen in Los Angeles in the late 80s and 90s for me was high opening. There was the time I had my first mole sauce. You know, all those things are very complex. Uh, my first taco, my first burrito, my first... Uh, we used to go to uh, uh, El, Pollo, El Pollo Loco to, guess, to get uh, charcoal grilled chicken with uh, Mexican sauce. And it was so good. Simple, but so good. And with Joaquim, we learned to do stuff that people enjoy, to be different, to be, you know, we used to make a corn crème brûlée. A corn
0: crème, yum. 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 Yeah, we used to make corn
1: candy, we used to infuse a cream with popcorn, strain it, and that crème brûlée was amazing.
0: You're listening to Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Do you have a passion for one particular French dish, ingredient, or cooking technique? Add to that, do you have a story to tell? Well, I'd love to hear it. And I'm sure many of our Fabulously Delicious audience would too. So get in touch, slide into my DNs. Hmm, I've always wanted to say that. On Instagram at Andrew Pryor Fabulously, as I'd love to hear from you and hopefully have you on Fabulously Delicious. Trying all this uh, fabulous new food that you, you're getting influenced by there, the mole and, and things like that. Did you ever think of becoming a cuisine chef? as opposed to a pastry chef?
1: So I did, uh, so in France, I was, I became a chocolatier <clears throat> with a diploma, but when I worked for Dicas, on my day off, I would work in a fish station, ah. because that was the hardest station to learn uh, in these restaurants. And, um, and you know, keep in mind, the fish station in France, you get your fish at 10 a.m. delivered. And you have an hour and a half to set up everything for your service starting at noon. So it was a fat, fast pace. All the fish was amazing. I mean, nothing caught in the net. All line caught fish. Early in the morning, they will be delivered. I think probably still moving. So I learned that, you know, speed, organization, how to burn your fingers and move on, you know. And, uh, and I always loved cooking. But when I moved to the States, I moved there with the idea I would become a chocolatier, but there was nobody making chocolates. Actually, the only chocolate shop was Godiva. No, there was no there was no chocolate artisan when I moved to the States. The way you have to. the bean to bar concept was non-existent. Hershey's, you know, people ask me, "What do you work for?" You know, Godiva, Hershey's. I said, "No, I'm, I want to do." So it was not the concept. So I did pastry, <clears throat> but I always work on my on the side in the kitchen too, and. Uh, I became a recognized pastry chef in the U.S. But often on my day off, you know, I will go work one day with Joachim in the kitchen because I love that rush, that crazy moment, that speed, that, you know, cooking and pastry is a different world. I always say cooking is it's to, f- to feed an instant need. You, you cook because you're starving at the core. You have to survive. You're going to harvest, fish, hunt to feed yourself. Baking is different, pastry is different. You do it for celebration, for pleasure, for to share with people. So it's a different approach, you know, uh, baking, pastry, it's planning, it's chemistry, cooking, it's all at the last minute. It's all um, making something crazy. So I, I love the two aspects, but I did become more successful in baking and pastries and cooking in the States. And at and, and that time, everyone, everyone wanted a pastry chef. That was a time where pastry chefs were making more than restaurant chef in LA. Right, <laughs> okay. I mean, you moved to New York, you could ask for a six-figure in early 90s as a pastry chef in a top restaurant. So there was that wave of, uh, you know, uh, food network, pastry magazines. Uh, at that time, I think it was 20 of us. We were in high demand for for pastry.
0: Fabulously Delicious is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Check out other shows at evergreenpodcast.com. If you're enjoying this episode of Fabulously Delicious, the French Food Podcast, then you should check out my Story Of series, where we've talked about other fabulous chefs that have made history in one way or another in French food. I've discovered the father of French cooking, some would say, Marie-Antoine Conem. Auguste Scoffier, who set up the working processes that we know in today's commercial kitchens, Eugene Brazier, who many would say is the mother of French cooking, and another fabulous French woman who founded the acclaimed Le Cordon Bleu cooking school, Elizabeth Brassard, and many more fabulous chefs. To learn more about these fabulous French chefs and cooks and their stories, check them out at Fabulously Delicious The French Food Podcast and search the story of... you now live in canada why did you move to canada and when
1: uh it it it, it was a strange circumstances so i was living in new york working with forces on so and then i wanted to do something on my own so uh, an investor approached me out of toronto he said oh i'm doing this new concept in toronto and now toronto 25 years ago for food was maybe five big restaurants and that's it so he came to me and he loved what I was doing. He said, I'm opening this fancy pastry shop slash restaurant slash retail concept on Bloor Street. Bloor Street is, is like the Champs-Élysées in Paris. Would you mind to come? And I'm like, sure. And we talk more. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, why not? So he will, he will have me doing uh, apply to a, for a business visa. And so every three months I have to renew that visa at the, the Canadian consulate. And sometimes it was difficult, and you know it was a bit difficult. And and the lawyer from Canada, so oh, I will do your landed immigrants. And I'm like, I don't need it because I'm a US at that time I was already a US citizen. And um so never heard about it, but I did my stint in Toronto for two years. I would fly back and forth Toronto, New York, and then we opened in Washington, DC. So my my circuit was Washington, D.C., Toronto, Toronto, New York, because that was my home, Washington, D.C., so I was flying nonstop, three flights a week, loved it, you know, making great money and, and doing in Toronto something nobody's seen it, like a high-concept French pastry restaurant. You know, I mean, nobody heard about Yuzu in Toronto in in 98. We, we, we used to do stuff with Yuzu. Nobody knew what it was, you know. And uh, so that was great. And then um, left the concept, open Mount Place in San Francisco, uh, restaurants. Because I always loved the north, northern coast of California. I've always been a big fan. You know, keep in mind when I moved to the States after a few months, I moved and lived in Carmel, Monterey, which is one of the most beautiful places on earth. Love it. It's like paradise. I still go back every two, three years. And I always loved San Francisco as a food town was just, you know, um, an amazing place. You know, you could see the synergy of the weather was like so unique, you know. Uh, it's cold in summer, warm in winter, you know. Uh, there is light, the light, the daylight in San Francisco because, you know, there's always a the sun move and there's a lot of white building in San Francisco. It's very bright, very, um, you know, and then around 2 p.m. this is a fog coming from the ocean and the city becomes chilled and cold and you're looking for a warm place i love that dynamic and so i opened a place in san francisco and i realized san francisco was a tough city to cook Uh, you know it's a small town san francisco it's probably the the sixth largest city in california it's not you know uh, san jose is bigger sacramento i think is a bit bigger now and san San francisco you know it relies on tourism and convention that's your bread and butter for restaurants and if they don't come, you don't do business. The locals don't eat as much. You know, in 2000, was I opened in 2002. There was great restaurant in San Jose. Nobody would drive from San Jose to San Francisco. So it was a bit tough. I did get a great review with Michael Bauer, the food critic from The Chronicle. You know, he gave me two and a half, two and a half stars from my restaurant. And then the business, like, boomed packed overnight. And, you know, and then it's not good. To be busy overnight is never good for a restaurant. Couldn't manage properly. And um, and then we get hit with um, back-to-back with the war in Iraq. So that year, no European moved to San, went to San Francisco very little because there was this climate of the French didn't go with us. And, you know, and San Francisco is a very anti-war peaceful city, but, you know, no, it was no tourism that year. And then we have the SARS issue, too. You know, the um, a lot of people cancel. Yeah. <clears throat> The business went belly up and I have to drop out from the restaurant closet because I wasn't making money, you know. And San Francisco, it's tough for restaurants. In good time, it's difficult. So in bad time, it was uh, a nightmare. And then that, within three months, I get in a mail my, uh, from the Canadian immigration that I was accepted to move to Canada. That was like, here, yeah. pure coincidence. And, and I always loved Vancouver. You know, I would come to Vancouver often from San Francisco to our flight, and Vancouver at that time was still cheap. You could rent a condo in a waterfront for $600, $700 Canadian, which is not the case anymore. So I, I kind of have a little getaway home in Vancouver. Exchange rate was great, two hours flight. And then when I'm like, you know, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to take, you know, I deserve a break. So closed my restaurant, sold all the equipment, what I can. and moved to Canada and I'm like, life is good here. You know, life... Um, and then I met my uh, my son's mom, she became pregnant, and I was supposed to move back to the States uh, because I was um, Four Seasons Hotel wanted me to do a new project. And the, my GM from New York was part of that project in California, uh, the new Four Seasons at wetless Village. But because medical insurance will not cover her <clears throat> for her pregnancy, I'm like, I cannot do it. You know, I'm staying in Canada. <laughs> And this struggle a little because, you know, Canada has different games, different market. You don't get paid the same, um, you know. Yeah, I mean, now it's better. But in 2002, 2003, Vancouver, if you ask for 50 grand for a chef position, people look at you with eyes like this. It's not the same kind of, you know entrepreneurial spirit you know uh, yeah it's very reserved very um you know they, they do copy a lot in canada i find in terms of restaurants. it's better today but you know you could go to vancouver restaurant 25 years 20 years ago and it was all speed copies of restaurant in la and san francisco i won't give any names but you know those guys went to san francisco to to learn so um you know you do have to learn one way or another. But.
0: So then how did the opportunity come about to be a judge on the Great Canadian Bake Off?
1: So, you know, they, um, they won't tell you anything. So I got a call from CBC, which is, you know, the uh, national uh, network in Canada. It's like ABC in Australia. And they say, well, there is a show we want to do. Would you be interested? I'm like, what kind of show? We cannot tell you. And, you know, I'm like, no, maybe not. <laughs> And they say, you know, could we do an interview with one of our casting agents? I said, maybe. So I do my first interview and I told her, I said, listen, I think there is better pastry chef out there for that job than me, you know. And that was it. Then a week later, they called me again, said, Bruno, you know, we want to talk about you, do you, would you fly to, Ven- to Toronto to meet us to do some technique on camera? I'm like, okay, I go, you know. We're good to lose. I spend a few days in Toronto, which is a city I love. So I fly to Toronto, bump into my best friend at the airport with a pastry chef who is being calling for the show too. I'm like, Thomas, what are you doing here? So I'm going to Toronto for what? Uh, well, the CBC called me. I'm like, here we go. So we end up going to Toronto together, and then we know nothing much. So we sh- we are put in a hotel. Next day we, we are driven to the studios to do the Interview on camera, the whole chemistry and, you know, and I remember Thomas and I would walk into the room. There is maybe 20 guys for the job. And I look at Thomas and he look at me. I said, dude, what a fucking waste of time. They will never pick us because those guys in the room were like models. You know, it was an Australian guy, blue eyes, blonde, like straight from Bondi Beach in Australia. There is skinny jeans, tattoos, hipsters. I mean, you name it. And there is two average Joes, me and Thomas.
0: Bruno, Bruno, Bruno. Now you're selling yourself short. There, you've got that French accent. I mean, hello. And Thomas is German,
1: so we play a trick. No, he's so, not getting in. He's not getting in for sure. So German. Thomas, I took a German accent when I did the stuff, <laughs> and Thomas took the French accent. So we of play here, you know. So one of the casting directors was confused because I show up and said, "Ah, I'm Thomas. Nice to meet you," you know. And Thomas went, "Oh, my name is Bruno." <laughs> so we but we did on camera testing, so we kind of fake the whole thing. They hire actors, and I, you know, I, I live in LA for four years and have friends who are, who are actors. And I, I know I learned one thing in acting: if you try too hard, you're not yourself, and you won't, they won't cast you. And everybody else was like, I look at them and look as, on camera, and they are like, they're not themselves. They are just they pretend they were acting. They were creating this mannerism and me, I just go and, but what we had, we had a lot of recipe to taste and those recipes had in them. And we have to kind of understand the problem and explain and be, and doing it in a whole constructive way. So I remember was these muffins who obviously was no eggs inside. So when I tried, they want to see, to see reaction. And my reaction was like, you know, you don't want, you want to critic without being critical. You want to, you know, explain say, mm, that muffins is lacking texture. You know Did you forget anything? Because I feel, you know, maybe, maybe you don't have the right amount of eggs. You know, I mean, look at the bounce and then you explain. It's one thing to critic, but if you don't explain why. So I say, look, your muffins, you know, it's very dense. It's lacking that bounce back, that beautiful texture you would expect in a muffins. You can even see it the way it's rounded. You know, it, it wasn't created that, you know, and I think you know, the eggs, either you forgot or you do not put enough, but there is an egg problem. And then, what do you think? Try it yourself. You know, so you create that connection. And I guess they love what they saw. So I did, I think we did like six on camera techniques. And next day they called me, I was still in Mountain. They said, Would you mind to come back again today? So, and it was just me and Thomas, we were the last two guys. We did another whole day on camera. And Thomas told me, I don't want to do it because it's not me, it's not uh, what I want to do. He said, Bruno, it's yours. I don't want to do it. And I told Thomas, you know, you're my best friend. If you get it, I'll be happy for you. i would be thrilled. He said, I said, don't say no because you or me. I mean, I want you to fight for that job.
0: So you've been a, a judge now for five years on The Great Canadian Bake Off. Do you have a favorite contestant on the show or can't you say that?
1: No, I don't have. I mean, I love them all and I don't have any favorite one, for the only reason that I trained very hard not to have any bias against any bakers. That my judgment is only based on the bakes and the baking, nothing else. If I have a favorite, that will infringe of my ability of judging. So I, and actually we don't know who they are until the day before we start shooting there is very little we have no connection with them and i I won't even engage with them offset so we're on set we talk but off camera we don't have any because you don't want to create and i think human nature is to develop connection with people yep and i don't want that to interfere with my ability to judge properly so i can tell you i do have a ton of respect for all of them because it's not easy and i do tell them you know i mean every season the same, nobody wants to go home first. And it's the hardest one to judge too. And I always tell them, look at it, it's like a book. Chapter 1 is that important as chapter 8, 9, and 10, so, you know. But you know, favorite desserts, what I tried, I mean some of the stuff is fantastic. Baker, I think some are better than others, of course, some are more talented. But at the end of the day, I can't because, and I never wanted. because uh, they are all amazing, you know, I mean, to be there, to do what they do under a tent in summer in Toronto, we're talking about days when it's 40 degrees Celsius under the tent, and they do it, and you know, there is no fake, we, if it's two hours, it's two hours, we don't do, let's do it again, oh, sorry, you know, and all of them, I mean, there is very little failure, we do design the whole program to be sure they are set for success you know if you fail because you failed not because you're out of time it's designed in a way that um you know it's nurturing you build, and they all come friends from day one you know i do go like in vancouver one of the baker organized every year christmas dinner so it's getting bigger and bigger <clears throat> i do join them you know and they become friends for life. It's an amazing experience. I mean, keep in mind there is nothing to win. There is no money prize. There is no, um, you know, it's a huge time commitment. You know, if you make it to the final, it's seven weeks commitment and paid. And So respect for all of them. Tremendous amount of respect. Uh, none of none of them are my favorite because you know I look down just at what I have to judge. Uh, I think super important. You don't, be, you don't judge based on ethnicity, where you come from, where you learn, your grandparents, where they come from. The color of your skin has no play for me in my judgment. I think for of judges judge the same. We look at the bake. <clears throat> I can tell you one of the best chocolate mousse I had in my life was on the set in season four from Rafikats Wow. She made wow. a chocolate mousse in the semi-final. That was probably the best chocolate mousse I had in my entire career if not the best. And, um, and I want to remain that way that, you know, I look at the skills, the product was presented. That's my criteria. I don't, uh, because otherwise it's a circle. You fall and it's very hard. And I think the other contestant, we feel, if you have a, a favorite, I think people can catch it. People can see. People can, you know, because you, you can look at people do a little smirk, a little smile, And the other contestant will see it hide away, you know, say, oh, you know, and that takes away from, it's not fair for anybody. So, you know, we say hi, we wave, but we don't have any interaction. And I think it's the best way to do it.
0: The host of that first season, which was Dan Levy, he is just a a pioneer in what he does, you know, in uh, Schitt's Creek. It was just an amazing, an amazing television series. What was it like to spend that time uh, working with him?
1: So, to be on TV was never part of my big plan. To be on TV next to Dan was even even a remote part of my big plan. So, uh, so and I, I watched, funny enough, the year before I watched season one or two of Shit Creek. And then when I asked who was on the show with us, somebody said, Dan Levy. But I didn't put two and two together until a few days before we met. I'm like, fuck. So... I was like, I wouldn't say starched truck, but I'm like, this is big. I mean, I need to perform. So I put a lot of pressure on myself to perform to, you know, and my frustration on season one was I was never trained to be on TV. I was thrown in, you know, so I get very frustrated because, you know, it's a long day, a shoot day, an episode is two days, 6.30 in the morning to 8, 9 p.m. at night. And so to keep your energy level is very difficult but season one, I felt I, w- I had the same narrative, I have the same. I was repeating myself of the time and and Dan was good in a way like he never made me felt i don't belong. He always made me felt I was part of the team, um, he was very nurturing I, he said don't worry it's fine it's okay and those little moments was like thank you, you know that he would look at me you know because I will be um, you know I will be on set you know when we do the the uh, the the, on a technical in, in sixth place, and, you know, who's are those? So I had the line to say, who's are those? Now, in French, we don't say that. We don't have that. And for me, it's season one, who's is this? You know, and I remember people laughing on the back, and it kind of frustrated me. I know he wasn't, you know, it was, just very, it was cute, but I'm like, I don't want to be on TV seen as a cute guy. I want to be seen as a professional, because Dan is putting his time, Dan is Dan's reputation as well. I want to be. I want to be seen as a professional. So season one was struggling for me internally. Like I felt I didn't belong there. I felt I wasn't worth it. I felt, even like, why did you choose me? I, I can't even pronounce, you know. But Dan was very supportive. Dan is a very busy man. I mean, keep in mind, Shit Creek, he act, produce, and write it. So he was doing on season one and two. He was working on Shit Creek at the same time for the following season. So he has his own team, but still he made time to say, Bruno, thanks, you did great today. And I remember leaving, feeling like not great, and just for him to say, you know, good job. And because he's a professional and he knows what he's doing, uh, Julia was fantastic. She was so cool down to earth. So season one, I struggled internally. I guess I did well because season two, I was called back. But season two, I came back prepared. I took lesson there is a lot of technique you can learn. You know, when you're in front of a camera, you want to say everything right away. I learned technique like pause, breathe, capture the moment. And there is technique of space and time in front of a camera. And it's not easy, you know. So I learned this. I learned how to speak clearly, slower, articulate, create that narrative that capture people. Uh, so I did a lot of off seasons training. And I remember one of the uh, trainers, Tommy, me, said, Bruno, in the eyes of the viewers, you are the expert. So you have to speak clearly. You have to express properly. And then season two I was better. And Dan saw it. Dan is like, dude, what happened during the break? I say, you know, I took lessons because, I, I, you know, I want to be worth it. I, I don't want to waste any, anybody's time, you know. Dan didn't come, in, come back on season three because I know season two he was struggling between shooting Shit Creek. And I think he wanted his last season of Shit Creek to be the big boom. So he didn't come back. Julia had a big contract with a, uh, a new show in the US. So he was timing. We moved some of the production, but they couldn't have them both on, ta- on set at the same time. So they pick over, um, over host for season three. Again, it's, it's always about timing, how to coordinate the schedule of four people on set. Keep in mind, uh, one season, eight weeks of shooting.
0: How can I have you on the podcast and not ask you about French pastry? Is choux pastry really a pastry, or is it more of a paste?
1: Well, it, it becomes a pastry once you fill up with custard, or you know. But it's it's, yeah, I mean, the choux pastry has very little sugar, a like, tiny amount. So, uh, but it, it is used. I would say ninety percent is used in in pastry but you can make gougere with it, and it's the same recipe, you just put cheese. So, you know, it's looked, you know, it's, it was probably developed by cooks to make gougere and then pastry took it. I don't know the whole story, but the way I see it, you know, uh, it was a, a, a cook trying pastry.
0: Short crust, pate soup or puff pastry, rough puff, are they French or are they from somewhere else?
1: So rough puff is not French because the French will not allow it in the kitchen <laughs> you know you need to learn that technique so um, but it's a good way to sh- it's a good shortcut because nobody has the technique or the time to make puff pastry and you know let's face it you know regular home is not easy to make I don't do a pastry sh- uh, puff pastry here because it's so difficult and frustrating uh, so it's a good way to make it it's fast it's short and if you do it well it's. It's flaky, it's tasty, it's crispy. So I don't, I don't have any problem. Uh, pâte brise, pâte sucrée. You know, it's classic pie dough. When you come to North America with lard and shortening, it, 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 to make a good pie, you need a pie dough. You know, I've done pies with pâte sucrée, pâte sablée. It, it's not the same. A pie dough with a, a shortbread. You know, a short dough. It's better, I think. And I don't have, you know, I love butter. I love, but I got to say, a uh, flaky dough with lard. It's nothing wrong with that, you know. But under the right circumstances, you know, there is a love of pies in North America. To respect it, you have to embrace it. You have, you know, one of my first cookbooks I bought in the U.S. was an American baker by Jim Dodge. Jim Dodge. Um, you know, a guy who was training Italian American, but an amazing pastry chef. And I bought his first cookbook. It's all about pies, crisp, cobblers. So that's, I never heard, but that technique of juicy pies, of, you know, the dough sucking into it. It's a whole different approach from French. It's it's simple, but not that easy to achieve, you know, and I learned a lot from that of principle of baking, of dough, of, you know, I I use butter 90% of the time, but a flaky pies you need lard for it, you know. Yeah. And of course I don't eat lard because you know I always say you know I only eat stuff I can put on my bread. If I can spread it on my bread I eat it. <clears throat> lard I don't. But on a on a flaky dough it works better, you know? And, you know.
0: That's it for another episode of season three of Fabulously Delicious. Hope you've enjoyed this great conversation with Breno. What's the most fabulous thing you learned from today's episode? Let me know by contacting me via Instagram. Slide into my DMs at AndrewPriorFabulously or email me on contactandrewPriorFabulously.com. I love to chat with you all. Thank you for listening and remember, you know what my motto is whatever you do, do it fabulously. Merci beaucoup and bon app.